Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. We have a lot of distractions in our lives today with all the technology that we have. You sit down at your your laptop at night, and you think, okay, I'm just going to read this one article. And then an hour later, you're like, what have I, I've just wasted my life looking at nothing. This is, I can't believe I did this. And then you we get away from your laptop, and there's the cell phone, the smartphone, with all the, the pings of emails and text messages and Instagram and Twitter and then when you've got Periscope now, I don't even know what that is. Like, I, I, I've, I've seen a lot, but like, apparently it's a thing now. And it reaches a point where you like you feel like you don't have any control over your life, and it just, it's overwhelming. You're like, what can I do about this? Well, our guest today makes the argument we should look to the past, particularly great thinkers of the past, to find insights on how we can live a good life in the age of technology. My guest is William Powers. He's the author of the book, Hamlet's Blackberry. And in it, he makes the case that Individuals like Shakespeare, Thoreau, they have insights and wisdom that can help us manage technology in a way that we can be a part of our life, but not control our life. So if you've been feeling a little frazzled by all the technology in your life, this episode is for you. So without further ado, William Powers, Hamlet Blackberry. William Powers, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Brett. Great to be here. All right. So your book is called Hamlet's Blackberry. We'll get to the meaning of that title here in a bit. Uh, but it's basically about you're, – you're basically trying to create a philosophy for the good life in the di- digital age. What inspired you to start this project? Was there a moment that sparked you? Like, I need to figure this out. Like, technology has just overrun my life and it's making me miserable. Was there a moment like that? There were there were basically two moments, Brett. Um the first moment was um, I was invited to take a break from my work as a journalist um, and to go to Harvard to be sort of a scholar in residence at Harvard at, at a nice academic center there. And um, they asked me what I wanted to do a project about. I just had to do a kind of a study and, and write an essay about what I learned. And I immediately kind of blurted out without even thinking about it. Um, I, I said, I would like to do something about this, the death of paper that I keep reading about. People keep saying that, that books on paper and, and everything hard copy is dying. And something inside me 
kind of objected to that idea because I was finding that hard copy stuff, hard copy reading was had become a kind of oasis for me away from my devices. Um, so I spent a semester at Harvard looking into the question of whether print on paper is dying. And um, I concluded that obviously it's declining, but I kind of predicted that um, digital reading will only really take off in a big way and conquer print when it does for us what reading on paper has always done, which is sort of center us and allow us to focus and be undistracted in our thinking. And it hasn't done that yet, as you know. Mm -hmm. Digital devices are very good at distracting and dividing our attention. Oh, yeah. So I wrote, I wrote that essay. It had a lot of um, technology history in it, including a story from Shakespeare's Hamlet. So I called the essay Hamlet's Blackberry. And then um, I started to think about whether it could be a book. And the second thing that happened was that I, uh, my family and I had moved to a small town on Cape Cod from busy Washington, D.C. And my wife and I sort of thought that Having moved from a busy place, we were going to find we had this nice, calm, centered life. And that was one of our goals, where we could focus on our family time and so forth together. And it didn't really happen um, because, of course, we took with us from D.C. the very thing that was making us busier than ever, which was our digital devices. And I remember looking around me one day at my house, and we were all sort of had our backs to each other, staring into our screens, even though it was like Friday night and nobody was working. And we weren't even really together. And that was when I kind of decided I really have to write a book about this and try and solve this problem of technology bringing us so much benefits but also taking so much away and maybe devise a philosophy that would help us get out of that conundrum. Okay, so you was talking about, yeah, it's brought us a lot of benefits, but some of the downsides you've highlighted in your book, and one of them is that it's brought us infinite knowledge to our fingertips, right? You can find out anything mm -hmm. about anything. Just go to Wikipedia. Right. Um, right. But we've lost the ability to not only think deeply, but you say to feel deeply. Mm -hmm. Can you can you provide some examples of this loss of ability to think and feel deeply? Yeah. So um, so on the thinking front, that goes back to this question of you know, are you really reflecting on whatever it is you're doing and really sort of um, giving it all of your attention? I think the best creativity comes from really kind of carving out a space where you can focus on that one task that's important to you, whether it's, you know, your work or the book that's in front of you or whatever. If you're constantly, your mind is constantly wandering, you're not, you're not going to any depth. It's like being a water bug on the surface of a pond. So that's the thinking side. The feeling side um, is really about relationships. You know, I think being with people physically is not enough in terms of, um, you know, real togetherness and depth, emotional connection. And I found that, you know, we see this happening all around us every day. We're not doing that as much as we used to because these uh, amazing little gizmos have gotten in the way of it. I mean, that kind of raises the question, I mean, why is that? I mean, if if we're, we get so much benefit from thinking deeply and feeling deeply and connecting with people on a very intimate level, how is it that something like so frivolous can take us away from that well i would disagree with you i don't think it is frivolous i mean i think that the, the the power that these devices have to enrich our lives and to put us in touch with other people and ideas and images and 
you know, moving videos and all this stuff that comes at us is amazing. The potential of it is fantastic, but our attention is limited. And that's the problem. It's we've kind of, we've kind of oversaturated that part, the attention part of our lives to the point where it's just divided up into a million little pieces every day. And that's not taking us to that place that we're talking about, which is the ideal place to be of real presence, real focus. You can't get there if you're just dividing every second up into a bunch of different pieces. And and I can, you know, I wrote this book. It's all about getting out of that problem, but I still find myself doing it years later because it's just hard to escape. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting too. So it's not only the technology that distracts us and splits us up into a billion different pieces, but the technology also creates a sense of urgency within us. And you talk about how into our culture today, busyness is sort of a badge of honor, right? When people mm-hmm. ask you, like, how are you doing? Oh, busy, really busy, busy, busy. I mean, that's, right. I do that all the time. Right. Um, but being busy doesn't really mean you're being effective, right? Like, you're not actually doing something. Why are we so drawn to being busy and feeling like, even though it makes us feel miserable? Because everyone talks like, oh, I'm so busy. Right. I can't wait to go on vacation. Um, right. What, what, what's the draw there? Well, you know, there's a lot of theories about this, but the prevailing one that I find most convincing is that it has to do with our amazing brains, you know, this uh, capacity we have for kind of higher level thinking and and a curiosity that the um, biologist E.O. Wilson calls the, the excess capacity of human beings. We have obviously this X factor in our brains that no other creature has. And our minds are constantly searching for things to latch on to, to think about, to explore, to do. And that's in many ways the best part of us. That's why we have this incredible civilization and these beautiful cities and all these things that we have came from our, in a sense, from our busyness. But, you know, it's it's always in tension with this other, I think, emotional and intellectual need we have for quiet time and space and a little distance from the busy world, because I think that's where we do a lot of our best thinking and feeling, as we discussed. And technology, all through history, technology has kind of pushed against that need for distance, because think about what communications technologies have done gradually over the last couple thousand years. They've pulled us literally closer together, not literally in the sense of physically, but they've linked us much more tightly together. And... Um, that's a challenge. You know, that distance is harder to come by. And it really is, I think, part an important part of the equation of being a full human being. Having that distance. Okay. Yeah. Um, so like, but to manage our, our busyness, we've come up with these productivity tools, right? You've right. got the calendaring tools, you've got uh, like digital assistants that kind of configure, look at your, your email inbox. It's kind of creepy. I have Google now on my phone mm-hmm. and it will like, tell me like it knows when I'm about to leave on a flight and it will say you need to leave for the airport right now if you want to get to your flight on time without me having to do anything. It's kind of weird. Um, But you make the case that these productivity tools that are supposed to save us from our busyness actually can undermine our productivity. How is that? Well, they can, you know, it depends on the tool. And so I think the early tools and the way we use the early digital tools, like, you know, the beginnings of email, the beginnings of websites, they were all kind of configured to maximize the incoming and no kind of concern for like our need to, you know, 
take things a little bit at a time and to be patient or any of that. It was like the more the better. In the book, I call it digital maximalism. And, uh, you know, you just can't get too much. And um, that was a mistake. And I think at the time I wrote the book, that hadn't fully dawned on civilization, but it has since. And people have been working on that. So now we have productivity tools that I think really do help us. I'll give you a few examples. I mean, you know how you kind of wonder whether you should make that decision about some app you're using, whether you should get the the higher level version, you know, pay for it, basically a monthly fee. And I've got a couple that I gladly signed up for because they help me so much in terms of actually being less busy. And there are two that are very popular, but I love Dropbox and I love Evernote. because they have removed all this kind of filing anxiety and, you know, everything is like crisply organized and I don't have to kind of wade through too much stuff to get to where I need to get to in my files. I'm a writer, you know, and I'm now working in the technology world as well. So I have a lot of information I need to save for all my projects and those help me hugely. And I've noticed that websites have gone the route. I'm sure you've noticed, you guys have actually, I think, done this with your own website, have gone the route of being cleaner and crisper and less information coming at you. If you compare medium.com, the blogging website, to what blogging websites looked like eight years ago, it's a completely different animal. We're trying to sort of unclutter, unbusy our lives, and I think that's a great sign. Okay. Let's talk about one more problem before we start getting into the solutions uh, here. And mm-hmm. One that I thought was really interesting is sort of this, sort of a paradox here. So, on the one hand, technology um, separates us, right? You, 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 for example, your example uh, with your family, where on a Friday mm-hmm. night everyone had their face in a separate screen and had their backs to each other. But at the same time, uh, it also makes us more attuned to other people's opinions. Right. Um, so, like, for example, the sociologist David Risen. Reisman wrote the book, The Lonely mm-hmm. Crowd. We've talked mm-hmm. about it on our site over 50 years ago. And he basically said that uh, we're becoming an other-directed society. Right At one time, people kind of looked into an eternal compass to navigate, but now they look to the opinions of others to to navigate. I mean, and I, you see that, I guess, with social media, right? That's sort of what the yeah. whole, how social media works. That yeah. Is, uh, you put your opinion out there, and you want to get the likes to see if you have... Yeah, the correct opinion. I mean, so what are what are the downsides of that, though? I mean, what do we lose by putting ourselves so much in the technology that it we're so focused on other people's what other people have to say about our opinions? Yeah, so you know, I love that book, and I often have fantasized about what if David Reisman could be alive today and yeah. see you know, where we've come, because he thought the 1950s was that way, everybody being so other-directed. And of course, that's our whole culture now, you know. And it's it's sad because technology, social networks, the way they're set up, they're kind of configured to play to our insecurities. You know, none of us really feels like we've totally got our act together and we've gotten to the place we need to get to in life. And we have all these doubts every day that are kind of gnawing at us. And we go on digital and it, they just multiply because we see these people with these perfect looking lives and we see people getting all these likes and having all these followers we don't have and it's torture. And yet there's something about it. It's sort of like the busyness. We can't help ourselves. And I think that's tragic. You know, I think it's, you know, if you read Eastern philosophy is especially good at this. But unfortunately, we've been moving for over a decade now in the opposite direction. And that's really one of the things I I try to take on in the book. 
Okay, so let's kind of just sum up some of the, the, the issues that technology have has brought into our lives. So there's, a, I guess, a sense of uh, disconnect from others on a, or a sense mm-hmm. of depth. But at the same time, uh, we become very anxious about the opinions of others and what people think about us. Um, right. And then there's sort of the lack of uh, depth in thinking and getting really into a topic and just sort of skittering on the surface. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I guess another one you could say is just splitting our attention into different areas where we feel rushed and really busy when maybe in fact, we're not as busy as we think we are, but the technology <laughs> makes us feel that way. Yeah. And also I guess related to all those things is just that missing kind of reflection time okay. where I think we can go to this creative place that's a little bit different from depth, but related where we can have actually fresh thoughts and make new connections that nobody else has made because we're away from all those voices. You know, that's what Facebook and Twitter are basically is all these people talk, telling us about their ideas they just had. How can you have your own if you're spending all day, you know, immersed in those voices of others? And so that, that reflective time space apart is crucial. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents, to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget, with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family when I'm gone, if something happens to me? Well, it's one of the first things I did. I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. 
Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best, become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the Masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. So let's talk about, to, to develop your philosophy of the good life, you uh, went to the past and looked at some famous philosophers and writers who have thought about the good life. Who are these seven historical philosophers that you used as uses? Yeah, I'll, t- I'll talk about each one briefly. So, and stop me if I'm taking too long. So um, um, I started with ancient Greece and with Plato. And um, one of his dialogues of Socrates that he so beautifully recorded. And this is a story um, that takes place at a time when the great technology revolution was the advent of writing, of the written word. The alphabet was actually turning the world of ancient Greece upside down. Until that moment, people had only communicated orally. And suddenly letters existed and people were learning to read and write. So the philosopher Socrates takes a walk um, is walking through Athens and he runs into one of his students who proposes they go for a stroll outside the walls of the city where they can have a little peace and quiet and a good conversation. And Socrates actually objects and says, well, no, I hate to leave the city. This is where all the action is. And this young student says, well, no, you know, if we really effectively, I'm not quoting him directly, but he says, no, you know, let's take a walk and you'll see if we get out into nature, you'll see our conversation might go to an even better place. So they take this walk. They actually have one of the greatest conversations in the history of philosophy, talking about all kinds of things, love and sex and um, what does it mean to write with words versus speaking orally, exactly that challenge they were facing at the time. And um, two things happen. Socrates winds up being convinced that it really is a great idea to get a little distance from your own busy life, which in his case was that world of conversation in Athens. And second, he remains firm on his, um, in his opposition to writing. He says, don't embrace that new technology. It's going to ruin your mind, he tells his student. So stay away from the alphabet. And I found that story useful because it is a reminder that although technology can be causing us all kinds of challenges, like the ones you and I are talking about now, we can't really see the trajectory of it over the horizon completely where it's going to take us. And in Socrates' case, he was one of the smartest men who ever lived, and he couldn't see that writing would actually become a wonderful tool for growing your mind and having creative thoughts if you use it well. 
he was this incredibly busy person in ancient Rome, which itself was a very busy place, the capital of this huge empire. Uh, in addition to being a philosopher and playwright, at one point he was basically running the empire um, for the boy Emperor Nero when he was still a boy. Um, so Seneca discovered that in order to really be effective at everything he did, his writing, his thinking, his politics, he had to actually carve out this space kind of apart from all of his activities, similar to Plato, but in a different way. He did it purely as a mental exercise. So he didn't take a walk out in the country to do this. He actually didn't have time to do this. He would sit in a room and focus on like one, he would write one letter to one friend and focus only on that, and don't let any other tasks get in the way. Think about that person, have them in his mind, and really kind of use letter writing as an exercise of focus. And he found it was an incredibly useful way to get away from the urges you and I just talked about, about, you know, what are people saying about me? What can I check now to keep busy? What's the, the, what's the thing happening now that I have to be a part of? He was able to basically quiet his mind with this simple inner exercise, which I find very inspiring. The next philosopher is Gutenberg, who famously invented the um, printing press in the middle of the 15th century. And the Gutenberg chapter, I, use, I, I go to Gutenberg not because he was technically a philosopher, because he wasn't. He was a technologist. He liked to build stuff like technologists today. But what he saw, his, one of his insights was that um, in his lifetime, up until the invention of his printing press, people had been reading books actually listening to books be read in huge uh, crowds because most people couldn't afford books. They were made by hand. They were very expensive. So they would go to churches and other places to experience books read aloud. So reading was this kind of somewhat busy, immersed in the crowd atmosphere. He created the ability through the printing press to have millions of copies of the same book that didn't cost that much to buy so that eventually people could have a private book that they could even you know, years later, carry on in their pocket and having that personal inward experience of depth that we get from reading a book silently and quietly. And that, I think, was a really, really world-changing and underappreciated aspect of his invention. Here we can do this now every day. Sit down with a book. I read every morning at dawn. I get up early and read a book. And I have Gutenberg to thank for that. And that's a kind of distance that serves me all through the day. The third story is the one of the title, Hamlet's Blackberry. My, my philosopher in that case is Shakespeare, who everybody's familiar with as a great playwright. There's a moment in the play Hamlet where um, Hamlet meets the ghost of his father, a famous moment in the play. And his father imparts this terrible news that he, his, he wasn't killed by the bite of a serpent. He was actually murdered by his brother, who's now the king, Hamlet's uncle. This news is obviously incredibly disturbing to Hamlet, and he doesn't quite know what to do, and he actually talks about his mind being just crowded with all these thoughts, and uh, you know he's just kind of in a tizzy, basically. And he suddenly says, my tables, my tables. And he takes out of his pocket this little tablet that was actually the great um, sort of personal technology innovation of Shakespeare's time in the real world. So not Hamlet's world, but Shakespeare's world. And it was a little, um, as I said, it was a tablet. It just had one surface and it was made from a kind of plaster-like material. And it had a stylus, a little metal stylus. You took the stylus and you could take notes on the plaster-like surface all day long, to-do lists, people's addresses you wanted to remember, blah, blah, blah. But the beauty of it was at the end of the day, with a swipe of your finger, you could wipe it clean. 
for the next day so that you were starting with a blank slate the next day. Now, why does this matter? This matters because Shakespeare was living through the print revolution that Gutenberg had begun a century and a half later, but it was really taking off now with newspapers and books being published in incredible quantities so that people had this feeling of inability to stay up with information. It was impossible to keep up anymore. They felt kind of overwhelmed by information. It was really one of the early cases of information overload. The tables moved in the opposite direction. You could put information on your little device in your pocket and at the end of the day make it go away. The ideal of zero inbox that some of us have today, Shakespeare was aware of the use of that and actually put of the usefulness of that and actually put it in the play Hamlet. My next philosopher is Ben Franklin, who I love. Um, he never had negative goals like drink less wine. Instead, he would say something like, um, enjoy more sober hours during the day, so that it always had sort of a positive spin and therefore was appealing to him. And I actually was inspired to, when I read Franklin for the book, I was so inspired, I actually started a ritual like that myself, where I set up my own positive goals, including technology goals, and would check off every day how I I had done. And I should mention parenthetically that um, when I told my son, who's 17, that I was doing this chat with you today, Brett, he mentioned that you guys have some kind of version of Franklin's grid that you offer yeah. on your website. Yeah. Yeah. And he, he has been using that. Oh, that's fantastic. Great. <laughs> so you have a fan in, in a 17 year old here in Massachusetts. Yeah. And so that method, you know, that Frank, it's not that he invented the idea of having a list of goals, but he took it to a very high level. And I think it's great that people like me and, and your readers are still inspired by that today. Um, The next philosopher is um, Henry David Thoreau, who's famous for kind of running away from civilization for two years and building his little cabin at Walden Pond here in Massachusetts. Um, Supposedly, Thoreau was actually a technology hater, uh, but in fact, that's not really true. First of all, he was a writer, so he was a fan of print technology. Second, his family owned a pencil-making company, which was a very powerful technology at that time, and he himself designed some really great pencils as a member of the company. Um, But I talk about Thoreau because... I think his experiment at Walden is incredibly useful to us in thinking about how we can actually configure our homes today that are so connected and so potentially busy all the time because of our devices, where we could, if we think properly about our homes, actually create spaces that I call Walden zones, where we've put a little distance between ourselves and all that busyness, just the way Thoreau did by moving out into the woods for a few years and getting some quiet time. And I sort of talk in the chapter about some specific ideas, for example, creating a particular room in your house or apartment or even a part of a room that's no devices allowed so that we can achieve some of that distance from our digital lives that I think is so crucial. is famous for uh, coming up with a couple of phrases, including um, the global village and the medium is the message. Uh, Less well-known about McLuhan is that he had this kind of very proactive idea about technology that we should all learn to view our technological lives as a kind of a thermostat that we can regulate and that devices can actually go really, really hot or really, really cool. Hot, meaning they kind of fill our ideas with all this stuff, all this information, which can be good in some cases, but often bad. And cool, meaning you kind of have a more of a spacious 
feeling of dealing with the device or the technology and it kind of gives you a little bit of a sense of being able to participate in a calmer, more focused way. As you can imagine, I favor the latter. Um, so I use a couple of stories McLuhan told to talk about how we should all, in some sense, view ourselves as being in the driver's seat of our digital lives and be able to regulate the heat or the coolness ourselves by just being more thoughtful about how we use our devices. So that's my seven philosophers. And if you want to dig into any of them or follow up on any of them, just uh, just let me know. Yeah, well, what I, th what I think is interesting about all of them is that you're not saying like get rid of technology. You're not like a Luddite. I guess the, the underlying theme is like be more thoughtful and intentional about your technology. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, you know, one of the things that's happened to me since the book came out is I've got, I'm now working in the technology world. I'm at the MIT Media Lab actually working on new technology ideas in, in the area of social media. And that happened through the book because some of the folks in that world liked reading it and wanted to work with me. And it kind of underlines the point you just raised, which is that I'm actually a big technology fan and even an early adopter of technologies. And um, I don't want to throw them out the window. I think this revolution is ultimately going to take us to a fantastic place. But we are not even close to there yet. And this is one of the areas we really need to work on. Yeah. I, I remember in, uh, when I was in college, I took a philosophy of science class. Mm. And um, the point, one of the main points the professor made in that class was that one of the problems with modern science is, is that we, don't, we no longer have time to develop a, a philosophy towards the technology that we have. Right? Right. Like before we had the wheel and like we had a long time to figure out how the wheel plays in our life we had writing we had like a long time to kind of figure out and now the way that technology advances and like we're getting all this new social media stuff like i guess there isn't a time to really pause and think about okay what how does this how's this going to fit into our life and like what is it right how's it going to change things so i guess yeah the goal is just the, the idea is just to be more thoughtful and think about how this technology will affect us and what role it's going to play in our life yeah and at the risk of uh seeming to tout my own workplace which i guess i'm about to do um, we get technology ideas and work on them in uh, kind of isolation from the commercial marketplace, which makes it so hard to be thoughtful because of the pressure to be profitable and to deliver for shareholders and so forth. We kind of have a sort of a, a bit of a sandbox where we can play around with stuff, see if it works, test it with you know our colleagues and with the public, and then maybe at some point down the road, if it feels like it could be a really great potential for the public, then turned it into a company. And that's exactly what we need more of, I think, is that kind of thinking about, you know, a philosophical approach to technology like your course offered. Yeah. I, I think it's interesting, uh, something I just learned about the Amish. Like, there's all this idea that the Amish are very anti-technology, like they don't use anything, which is true. Like they don't use cars or, you know, cell phones or things like that. But they're not anti-technology per se. They're just very picky about the technology they use. Um, I guess the idea is that they, before they'll introduce a new piece of technology, like they'll get together and like talk about, will this change our way of life um, to a negative way? And if it does, then we'll shun that. But if it will benefit us, uh, we'll bring it in. So I've, I've been trying to like take more of an Amish approach to technology. Not that I'm going to get rid of uh, my computers or laptops or Instagram, but thinking more deeply about, you know, is this making my life better or is it making me not happy. Yeah, that's exactly what I do, Brett. Um, I have the same approach. I try to be really thoughtful about every possible, you know, app, 
platform device I use and kind of, I, I don't literally think of it as the Amish approach. I love that thought. And in fact, I have actually heard from some Amish people since the book came out um, that it was kind of in sync with their point of view. Um, yeah, but um, I think they've got it. You know, I mean, I think we all, especially today, we all need a dose of that. I mean, so many of us are excited about technology, but at the same time, kind of drowning in it. You know, and and we're it's it's sometimes I think it's making us less human rather than more, and that's a problem. Yeah. So you mentioned one thing you can do is in your home sort of create uh, walled ins in your home where there's like no devices allowed. Um, another tip that you talk about in your book and you still implement to this day, and we've written about on the site is this idea of tech sabbaths. Um, can you explain what a tech sabbath is for those who aren't familiar with and how they can implement it into their own life? Yes. So I love these tech Sabbaths. We called ours, we invented ours, um, I guess it was 2006, so quite a long time ago when my son was um, eight years old. And uh, we called it Internet Sabbath because what it was all about was specifically the Internet. So it wasn't about technology per se. We didn't unplug our TV. We didn't you know, actually stop using our phones for voice and texting and so forth. But we did spend every weekend for five years completely off the internet. So the, the, the modem was actually unplugged Friday night in our house and not plugged in again until Monday morning. And that was incredible, unbelievable learning experience for all of us. And it was amazing, this other place that we went to every weekend together. It was very challenging in the beginning, very hard to wean ourselves off. But once we got to into the habit of doing it and began to see the potential of that disconnected time. It was amazing. We all have our own sort of smaller version of that now because we've kind of gone off into the world and done various things that require um, a little bit more than five days online. I do Saturdays offline. Um, my wife tries to do Sundays offline and my son who's away at school now does, um, does no video games at school, gotcha. no video gaming at all. So we all do our kind of Sabbath uh, equivalence and um, I find that it allows the mind to it's like you know how when you use a muscle a lot that muscle is always available to do tasks mm -hmm. when you want to do it because you've been working on that muscle it allows the mind to kind of always be able to switch into disconnected mode when you need it even when you're not doing the Sabbath so I find that if I keep my regular Sabbath on Saturdays if I'm having a really crazy digital day on a Wednesday I can still sort of step back and breathe and go to that place because I was there fairly recently. People who never go to that place, who never disconnect, I think they have a much harder time. Well, Bill, where can people learn more about your work? So my website is easy enough to remember, williampowers.com, and there's more on the book there, more about the book there. It's still for sale in the bookstores and on all the digital bookstores, digital websites, and um, I, uh, I'm on Twitter at Hamlet's BB, at H-A-M-L-E-T-S-B-B. And folks can email me through my website or reach out to me on Twitter if they, if they want to comment on the book or have any questions or whatever. I'd love to hear from them. Awesome. Well, William Powers, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Brett. Really enjoyed it. Our guest today was William Powers. He's the author of the book, Hamlet's Blackberry, Building a Good Life in the Digital Age. You can find that on Amazon.com. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly.
Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate. Pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.